If you would, remain standing for the reading of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we begin this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you misunderstood, I was referring to the Sermon on the Mount being the greatest sermon ever, not the sermon that I'm about to preach. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. So just as a reminder this morning, the Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it leads into the coming of Christ, the Son of God coming to this earth, putting on flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, shepherds and wise men gathering to worship Him, a humble beginning for the promised Messiah. Herod tried to kill the Savior of the world. John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ. We have seen the baptism of Christ. God the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus. God the Father voicing His pleasure of His Son, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The temptation of Christ and His obedience time and time again. Jesus beginning His earthly ministry. The calling of the first disciples. And as Matthew was writing these words to his fellow Jews, he was going over and over again to the Old Testament Scriptures, showing them that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the world. And today we arrive to what has been called the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. What I will discuss this morning is just an introduction to this amazing sermon that will include a basic overview, and by God's grace, it will equip us as hearers and prepare us for understanding what we will hear for the coming months. That's right, months. We will spend week after week looking at this amazing sermon. As we begin the study of this sermon, I want to begin with the truth that is helpful for us to be reminded of from time to time as God's children. The older I get, I am reminded of how forgetful I am. The Bible must not be a book in which we are content to just read. We don't wake up and just read God's Word and then flow throughout the day. The Bible is meant to be studied, thought about, meditated upon, preserved in our mind and our hearts, all for the glory of God and for our good as the children of God. If we approach the Bible, if we approach the Sermon on the Mount, if we approach Sunday morning, Sunday school, as something to read or just attend to get us through the week, we will find little profit in it. Our lives will not be transformed. The Holy Scriptures are breathed out by God. We need these sacred words, and we need to approach them with great reverence and humility. What does it look like to approach the Lord with great reverence as we read His Word? We take it seriously. 
We, we pray. We remind ourselves of who He is and who we are. He is holy. And we can only come before Him because of His grace. If we just read the Bible, and that is it, you will not find a transformed life. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that has come from the mouth of God, he was not talking about a quick eating, but a long feast. A savoring of God and His Word as we walk this vapor of a life. The Bible must not be a book in which we are content to just read, but something in which we savor and we enjoy. With this in mind, let's look at the context of this amazing sermon. The preacher, the preacher of this sermon is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The audience, the audience of this sermon is primarily his disciples whom he called to himself. Therefore, a great implication right off the bat for us as the children of God is that this sermon is for us. This sermon is for Christians, for those of us who have been born again, who have put our faith, our hope, our trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. Throughout this sermon, you will not find a call to repentance. It is preached to those who are following him. This sermon is for the Lord's church, those whom Christ has purchased by his blood. The location of this sermon is on a mountain. Some point to Matthew chapter 5 and then to Luke chapter 6 and declare that this is where we find contradiction in Scripture. But after a careful examination of these two different texts, it is clear that although very similar, there were two different occasions and two different teachings. Matthew chapter 5 being taught on a mountain and Luke 6 being taught on a level playing field. So you have a sermon on a mountain and you have the sermon on a plain. The great theme of this sermon is the nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and the life required of his children on this earth. To put it another way, this sermon tells us how God's children are to live and will live as a result of his grace. That the imputed righteousness of Christ will result in a righteous life lived by the Christian. It's not a possibility. Christ doesn't save souls for the possibility of them worshiping him. Christ saves souls because they are transformed and they will worship him. This includes our inward motives, matters of the heart, and our outward conduct. You will see both of these things brought out time and time again throughout this sermon. That is the great theme of the kingdom of heaven and the life required of his children on this earth. Now, over the last few years, we have heard the so what of this sermon. As a youth pastor for years, I would hear this from youth time and time again. You would get through teaching a truth and the youth will be spinning around their fingers saying, so what? Even as an adult, sometimes we sit through things and we hear them and we're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, you're going to get to the point, the so what? Well, I have a bunch of so what's for you this morning. We must look at the whole of this sermon before we break apart specific lines or truths that are taught. Just like a personal letter or a mystery novel 
We need the whole story before we can draw out the full and proper understandings. If we fail to know the full teaching, the overall teaching of this sermon, we will end up with false principles and miss the real purpose of what Jesus was teaching as he was sitting on the mountain. Therefore, to know the meaning of this whole sermon, we must study chapters 5, 6, and 7, all 111 verses. Martin Lowe-Joins put it this way. It says, The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called His new commandment. His new commandment was that, that we love one another even as He loved us. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a grand elaboration of that. If we are Christ, and the Lord has meant that word for us, that we should love one another even as he loved us, here we are shown how to do it. So in these three chapters, we find how we are to love according to the Lord. So Jones declares, this sermon shows us the how of love. So, so what, number one? The Sermon on the Mount shows us how we live out the great commandment. The Sermon on the Mount shows us how we live out the great commandment. We are not allowed to conduct ourselves in this life as we see fit. The Lord condemns that in the Scriptures. We don't do what is right according to our own eyes. Even though many do, we are to follow the Word of God, which means as God's people we must know what God has said. We have the life of Christ, we have the teachings of Christ preserved for us to know, therefore we should know them. We are not allowed to love others like we feel that they should be loved or redefine love. We love them according to what love actually is, as the one who has created it is the Lord, and he defines it described in the Scriptures. Just as we know what marriage is as God's children from God's Word, between one man and one woman, entering into a covenant before the Lord, promising to do what he has called marriage to be, we learn from the Sermon on the Mount how we are to love God and love one another. The Sermon on the Mount shows us how we live out the great commandment. So what, number two? The Sermon on the Mount teaches us that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. Now, Matthew is writing to Jews, as a Jew himself, concerning the kingdom of God, something that they misunderstood. As a whole, the the Jews misunderstood the kingdom of God. They were looking for a materialistic, a political, a earthly kingdom, and not a spiritual kingdom. And it seems this trend has come back in the generation in which we live. This sermon corrects the Jews' thinking. Jesus did not come to establish a temporary earthly kingdom that would fade away. He came to establish a permanent and eternal spiritual kingdom. When we read these 111 verses, we find something spiritual. We find a new birth that is given by grace, a righteousness that is not our own. This great sermon shows his children how to love him. It shows his children that his kingdom is spiritual, that it is more than what we see with our eyes, and we should not settle for what we see with our eyes, that God's kingdom is about the grace of God, the good news of the Messiah. Jones helps us once again. He says, we are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian. 
Rather, we are told, because you are a Christian, live like this. This is how Christians ought to live. This is how Christians are meant to live. This changes everything. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to be lived in the Christian's life. And we can live this way as Christians because Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins as he promised he would. He gives spiritual life because the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is not a step-by-step instruction on how to modify your behavior or the behavior of others as it is often used for. It is not about that. Neither is the Sermon on the Mount an outline of good works for us to do. I've done that today so that we will be saved. The Sermon on the Mount was taught by Jesus lived perfectly by Jesus, and his disciples and his children throughout the years have followed the Sermon on the Mount with their lives. So the Sermon on the Mount shows us how we live out the great commandment. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. And so what? Number three, the Sermon on the Mount promises blessing for obedience. Now let me define this blessing because it's not often what we think about today. It's not often what we hear. It's not a blessing of wealth or health. It's not a formula where you name it and claim it or blab it and grab it. The blessing is God telling his children that when you do what you were created to do, that when you follow the Lord for the purpose of worshiping him, that is a blessing. The blessing is living out a holy life before the Lord and for the Lord. What we find the truth in this sermon, when we find this truth, the truth of these three chapters flowing from our lives, we find comfort, we find satisfaction, we find a greater understanding of God's grace and mercy, we find contentment, we are all satisfied with who Christ is when we see these things flowing from our life. Because we know that Christ has saved us and Christ is doing what he is doing. He is so gracious. That is the blessing. God's children will be the salt and light in this world. God's children will love their enemies. God's children will have biblical prayers. God's children will fast. They will lay up treasures in heaven. Anxiousness will fade Contentment in God will grow, and God's children will bear good fruit for the Lord. The greatest blessing for obedience in the Christian's life is that they will know and be satisfied in the truth that they belong to God. They are favored by God. That they have been brought from death to life out of darkness into the wonderful eternal kingdom of God. The Jews looked for material blessings and an earthly kingdom. There's plenty of churches and Christians that are doing that today. But let us not point out the flaws of others, but as pilgrims, let's look at our own lives and be honest. We often look to material blessing and the building of our own kingdom at times. We often get caught up in the things of this world. But the greatest blessing is spiritual. It's not physical. 
John Piper said, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. The Sermon on the Mount screams that Christ alone satisfies. And the faster that you understand this, the greater blessing it will be for your life. That Christ is what we have and Christ is what we need. So this, this sermon shows us how to live out the great commandment. It teaches us that the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. This sermon promises blessing for obedience. And so what, number four, the Sermon on the Mount provides the great reminder that we are living before the face of God every day, and the wise man or woman will fear him. That the wise man or woman will fear God because he is looking upon us and we are living before him with great fear and reverence. The Christian is saved by God's grace for his glory, and this includes their purposes, that our purposes are to be lived for the glory of God. The Lord is our God. We are his people. This pulpit on this stage is not about who stands behind it. It's about the voice that has been preserved in Scripture for us to know. It's high and elevated. We are to fear him as his children. By the grace of God, we have been saved through faith. And the faith that saves is never alone. It is producing a life that bears good fruit, a righteous life, all for the glory of God. Many times over in this sermon, you find the contrast between the Christian and the non-Christian. That God's children fear Him. They worship Him. They follow His commands. There are things that Christians will do because they belong to Christ. There are things that Christians should not do because they belong to Christ. This is not legalism. This is the result of God's grace. This is a result of a new nature. For example, in chapter 5, Christians keep the law of God for the glory of God. Not because we're trying to earn our salvation. We want to please the Lord. Christians don't follow what the world says. They follow what God has said. Throughout this sermon, you're going to find the words, you have heard, but I say to you, if there is one reason for you to get up in the morning and read your Bible, let that one be it. You have heard it said by the world over and over and over again, and God says, but I say to you. And when you do something, do it this way, not like this. We have information here that we are, there is salt, there is light, there is anger, there is lust, there is divorce, there is oaths, there is retaliation, there is love, there is giving, there is prayer, there is fasting, treasures, anxiety, judging the golden rule. Jesus has instructions for us on how to live. If we fear him, we will follow his words, not just read them. It shows us, this sermon, how to live out the great commandment. It teaches us the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. It promises blessing for obedience. And the sermon provides a great reminder that we are living before him, and we are to do so with great fear and reverence. So what, number five, the Sermon on the Mount causes us to turn to Christ with a greater faith. We don't look at this and be like, Lord, how can I do this? We come before him through the reading of this sermon, realizing, Lord, we can't do this. I need Give me a greater faith in you and produce this in my life because it's all about you. 
As you read the sermon, you will find areas in your life in which you are failing. You will see what seems like that is impossible fruit for me to bear. But the intended result is that you would go to Christ with a greater faith and a greater reliance upon Him for all things. That our new life is found in Christ, and that includes our new way of living. That when we hear the voices of this world telling us one thing, we are to go to the Word of God and hear Him say, but I say to you. We hear what the world says all the time. We need to open up God's Word and hear, but I say to you. We need a greater faith in the Lord. Therefore, we must read, meditate, study, and look at this sermon. John MacArthur put it this way, The Old Testament law demonstrates man's need of salvation, and the New Testament message offers the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord had to begin with a proper presentation of the law so the people would recognize this sin. Then could come the offer of salvation. The Sermon on the Mount clarifies reasons for the curse and shows that man has no righteousness that can survive the scrutiny of God. The new message offers blessing, and that is the Lord's opening offer. So what, number six? The Sermon on the Mount is countercultural from the world. This sermon is countercultural from the world. The world does not think like the Lord instructs us to think here. The blessed are not those who are poor in spirit. That's the weak. The blessed are not those who mourn. The blessed are definitely not those who are meek and humble. The blessed are not the peacemakers, it's the ones who win. The blessed are not the merciful or those who are persecuted. Anger in the heart, that's okay in the world's eyes, not in the Lord's. Lustful intent is not only acceptable to the world, it's applauded. Divorce is always allowed because divorce is about you and your name. You can swear about whatever you want to swear about. Being a man or woman of your word, that's optional. It depends if you're getting fed and what you want. Eye for an eye, that's your right as a human being, according to the world. Don't love your enemies, conquer them. Keep storing up earthly treasures. After all, this world is all that we have. Don't judge anyone. Let everyone do whatever they want to do. The standards by which we are to live by as Christians must not come from the world. They must come from the Word of God. How we live, we go to the Lord. What we value, we go to the Lord. The character that we have and the character that we are display, not just in the church, but the character that we display in the world, we go to the Word of God. The spending of our time, the spending of our money, how we respond to trials, what we consume, our thinking, what we talk about, what we do and will not do, what we teach, what we accept, 
what we reject, the goals that we have in this life, the end game. It's sad, even every time I think about the word end game, I think about the Avengers. But what I mean by the end game is when you're coming to your last day that you're living on this earth, the question is, did you live your life for the glory of God? We are to find our standards in the Word of God. We are to look at the character and the teaching of God. Now, let's, let me provide you with a brief outline of this sermon for these, for these chapters that we're going to be diving into. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10. That's the character of the Christian. Matthew 5, verses 3 through 10, the character of the Christian. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, the reaction of the world to the Christian. Verse 11 and 12, the reaction of the world to the Christian. Verses 13 through 16, the relationship of the Christian with the world. The relationship of the Christian with the world. Verses 17 through 48 of chapter 5, the Christian and the law of God. The Christian and the law and the law of God. All of chapter 6, the Christian living in submission to and dependence upon the Lord. That we are living a life that is submitted to the Lord, and we are living for the Lord. That's all of chapter 6. All of chapter 7, the Christian living under the judgment of and in the fear of God. That the Christian is living under the judgment of and in the fear of God. It is a healthy thing for us as as God's people to not just have joy in what Christ has done, but to live with great fear and reverence before the Lord. Oftentimes there's only talking of one and not the other, but they are both extremely healthy. I am thankful for what Christ has done in my life and is doing and will do in my life, but I'm also living before him, recognizing that he is holy and he is still sanctifying We have arrived to what has been called the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. So please, please, please do not walk away thinking that a 40-minute weekly sermon will be enough for you. I'll just be honest, it's not. Make time to examine and meditate upon the words you find here. I was encouraged even this morning It was my son's first time in youth Sunday school, and he took something extremely literal. He said, Dad, next week we have a quiz. I'm like, okay. I took notes like crazy. It's like I have pages of notes, but I just found out that the quiz was a joke. I'm not saying that this sermon is a quiz. What I'm saying is if we approached God's word with that much reverence and that much humility, not because of a quiz, but the fact that we want to please God, how can we not dive into these words and chew on them over and over again, understanding them? Make time to examine and meditate upon these words. Like the disciples When Jesus climbed up on that mountain, he sat down and the disciples came to him and he taught them, let's do the same. 
Let's come before the Lord and listen by reading of God's Word. Examine your life. Talk to brothers and sisters in Christ. Talk to other people, the church here. Ask them questions about your own life. Ask for help in your life spiritually. Conform and conform yourself to the teaching of Christ that we find in these words. And today, if you're not a follower of Christ, may your eyes be open to the truth. May you call on Christ alone for your salvation. Turn from your sins. Turn towards Christ. And know this, if you are a Christian, you are blessed. You have everything that you need for this life and the next if you've been born again. So let's take some time as we walk through this sermon, feasting upon the Word of God. Look at Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Heavenly Father, over the next few months, we ask for your grace. We ask for wisdom, patience, clarity, insight. Help us to come before you, to sit before you and learn. Give us the energy and the strength and the want to to read and to study your word and not follow the foolish patterns of this world. Lord, we pray that you would conform us more into the image of Christ over these months. Give us greater understanding of our responsibility as your children. How we are to live, how we are to think, what we are to do, what is really ours. Help us to hold on to the promises, but to realize that you are truly everything. Grant us a greater contentment of being godly. And help us to remove our faith and our trust in the things of this world. Lord, shine the light on those who are not really saved and call them to you. Shine the light on the areas of our life in which we need to come before you with repentance and confession and a turning away from those things so that we would please you. We ask this in the name above all names, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.